0: If you're here visiting, we're very glad you're with us. We, uh, uh, we trust that you're here to hear the Bible. Uh, if you've been invited and you're not yourself a Christian or a regular churchgoer, we're, we're honored to be able to be the family that you're sort of visiting amongst today, and we hope that you, uh, you're here and you fall in love with and you give your soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, hope? Amen. That's what we exist for, seeing lost people redeemed and saved by Jesus Christ In and through his blood that we hear of in the gospel. Can you go and open up to the book of Exodus, everybody? If you're super new and you just got given a Bible today, Exodus is the second book. Uh, In the Bible. Uh, You'll find that in in the uh, contents page pretty easily, probably. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one, so please come and grab one of the deacons or elders or somebody afterwards and we'll get one into your hands. Uh, uh, Exodus has been the story so far, Uh, almost a year in it. We started early January in this book and here we are still marching our way through. Some of you may have felt like this has been the 40 year wilderness journey. Others of you have felt like it's the slavery in Egypt. I don't know. For me, it's been manna in the Wilderness. I've loved this book, right? Amen. Okay, good answer. So we're we're in this section where God has has redeemed Israel out of out of slavery. He's taken them through many perils in in the wilderness and and away from the Pharaoh's army, and and been nourishing them with. I was going to say magical, but miraculous bread from heaven and and water coming out of a rock that is, some scholars think, literally following them through the desert, giving them continual drinking water. And then as God has been continually redeeming them from initial slavery, ongoing uh, dangers, now we see that God at Mount Sinai, he has met with his people and continued the process of redemption, not this time out out of enemy territory or something like that, but out of ignorance and lawlessness. Ignorance and lawlessness give rise to chaos, sin, and self-destruction that are every bit as bad as slavery in Egypt. So God's goal, both for the Israelites and for us in the new covenant as Christians, was not merely and is never merely to get us out of hell, uh, get us out of the punishment of our sins and and into this this so-called freedom of absolute self-defining autonomy. Sort of the idols, the gods, the gospels of our day. You are your own Lord. You choose what is good for you, right for you, what is love for you. You do you. You were born that way. You identify that way. You choose that way. You, you self-disclose and, 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 and define yourself as your own God. But we find in Scripture that God marches us to the, to the mountain of his revelation where the word of God is exposed. And he says, this is what is right this is what is wrong. This is what is good for you. This is what is bad for you. And this is how you must live as my redeemed people, given my Holy Spirit. Now, we're in this section called the, the book of the covenant, which is a book within the book, within the Bible. Uh, and this book of the covenant, the Israelites called it, is Exodus chapter 21 to 23. After they heard the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, uh, then Moses went up and had a a special time of revelation from God where he spoke to Moses. And he was going to come back down and read it to all of the people. And we'll see that in chapter 24. But this section is defining for them how they are supposed to live as a nation in the promised land. Here's here's God's expressed purpose in this section, the book of the covenant. Not, Not his ultimate sovereign purpose, which we know is different, But his expressed, uh, 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 spoken, commanded desire and purpose in giving the book of the covenant is this. That he would take a redeemed, thank-filled people, full of gratitude. That he would then give them the law of God and make them a righteous people. Who in all of their thankfulness and in all of their devotion to God would then live as righteous people in the land that their people have been promised in Canaan. And that then, because of their righteous living in the promised land, that God would bless them beyond all other nations in the world and that through them would come the Messiah that would establish an eternal kingdom in and through those people. Now, we know that is not actually what happens because God's sovereign plan is actually better. But it is God's expectation. Expressed purpose. His, this, is, this is the command in and through the book of the covenant. Nation of Israel, live this way in the land of Israel and I will bless you. That was the, the command. Now, we have misunderstandings to correct because as we come to this section of scripture, we can tend to think, we, we fall back into that all too common way of thinking these days of Old Testament is, is real harsh And it's all just external. You know, God didn't care much for the soul and the spiritual life. It was was all just external and harsh and fatality was everywhere. You you utter the wrong prayer and you'll have your hand or your head chopped off. It's all blood and gore. and, And then Jesus comes along. And aren't we all thankful for Jesus? blonde, white, lipstick Jesus who comes in and says, it all ain't that bad. Oh, how I love you all. And he sits down and he, and, he, and he does origami roses and he does finger painting with his friends, the disciples. And then they go and spread the word of God's love and the judgment is gone forever. We, we cannot think that way as we read and understand our Bible. If you think that way, that the Old Testament was harsh, and Jesus introduced, Now, maybe you're not quite so far as to go that Jesus is the fingernail painting type liberal Jesus that many churches will fly the flag of. Maybe, but you'll go so far as to think, but, but Jesus did come and change a whole bunch. I mean, didn't he say that you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, and he quotes the Old Testament law, and then he corrects it and says, but I tell you, love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you. Didn't Jesus ultimately change and basically say to hell with the Old Testament law? If you think that, my loving pastoral word to you this morning is that you know nothing of the Old Covenant, nothing of Jesus, and nothing of the way that the two come together. This is what Jesus said. Yes, in Matthew twenty-two, remember, he was asked by uh, 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 by one of the people speaking to him. Matthew twenty-two, verse thirty-six. Somebody said, "Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In the not instead of the law, in the law." And Jesus answered him, saying, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind." This is the great. And first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, does Jesus say, stop worrying about the law. Let's just love each other. Or does he come to the book and tell them, you've been misunderstanding this your Pharisees, your scribes, your rabbis have been misinterpreting this. Don't take the the just law given to the judges and start enacting that in in your personal relations. Stop stop trying to get each other back. uh, That's the way a nation needs to behave. But, But as people, how about we love one another? I command you to love one another as you would love yourselves and love God above all else. For he says, not this is against the law, but these were in the law. In fact, he says in verse 40, on these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. God didn't change the law and say, let's do love now. He didn't change the law and say, now God cares about your spirit. Jesus says God was always seeking a people who loved him from their heart and who obeyed him with, with their hands from their heart, and who loved their neighbors just as much and more than they loved themselves. That was always supposed to be the understanding of the commandment. And here we find ourselves in the book of the covenant. And we're going to continue to read. And what we're going to see today, chapter 22 into 23, is how God expressed to the Israelites that they would lawfully love him above all else. And love their neighbors as themselves. So look with me at chapter 22 and verse 16. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 16. You will bear with me as I skip some verses just so that we can get a full understanding of the text today. So I'll tell you when I do it, but we'll, we'll do a bit of a hop, skim, and a jump here and there. Verse 16 Hear now the word of God. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If, If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, You shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge as down payment, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he keep and sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest, from the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. 23 verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man in a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to the poor man, in his lawsuit. Verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Verse 9. You shall not oppress a uh, 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 sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field... May eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and your olive orchard. Verse 12. Six days shall you do your work, but do, on the seventh day you shall rest. Verse 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Verse 16. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. May God bless in our midst his, his ancient, his old covenant, yet his powerful, wise, divinely inspired word in our midst this morning. Yeah. Amen. Love God, love your neighbor. Look at verse 18 to 20. First, we're going to work through the same way that the Ten Commandments are broken up. Right? We understand the first Four commandments are about loving God primarily, and the last six about loving neighbor. Well, we're going to do the same thing today. As we break up and collect all of these uh, uh, commandments together, we will understand how they show us and help us see that the Israelites were supposed to love God and love neighbor. In verse 18 to 20, we see three groups of people who were to be put to death. The sorceress who spoke to the dead or the angels... Uh, be, those who committed bestiality and laid with an animal. And at this point, you just you have to remember, remind yourself that as a parent, you find yourself making ridiculous rules. No jumping off the top bunk onto your sister's head. Why does that have to be a rule? Because they do it. Why did God have to make such ludicrous, horrible, barbaric laws as this? Take a guess. Humanity is disgusting and vile without God's law. So those who committed bestiality or those who sacrificed to other gods. Now now all of these were ways in which the Canaanites and some of the Egyptians would actually worship their false gods. So a part of this God is saying, don't do those things that other nations do to worship their gods. But we need to just make sure that they understood and we should understand they were sins in and of themselves whether or not they were idolatry, right? You, you couldn't go committing bestiality, sorcery, or some kind of other sacrifice and say, but, but to Yahweh I'm faithful in my heart. No, these are sins themselves, but particularly culturally relevant sins because they were pagan idolatry uh, 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 actions. And we see the severity to which God demanded exclusive worship. Because he says in three different ways, very creative ways, he says, Kill these people. Devotion to God in all of life, as an Israelite was so important that any scent, any smell, any even hint that you were doing those things which would, which would break covenant with God, you were to be snuffed out from the, gov- from the, from the covenant people because you were the problem. You're going to get our, our wives having miscarriages. You're going to have our sons killed in battle. You're going to have our cows start dying in the field. You're going to have God kill us by your sorcery, bestiality, and sacrifices to other gods. So God says, put them to death. He says, do not permit them to live. And he says, devote them to destruction. Israel, in their sexuality, spirituality, and in their worship, was to love the Lord their God. Look at chapter uh, 22, verse 28 to 31. Towards the end of the, uh, the, the chapter, 28 to 31, we see that they also... Uh, 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 were commanded to love the Lord their God in these ways. He says, Do not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. This is an extension of both the third and fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments. The third, because you're not allowed to blaspheme God. And then this sneaky little application that ties both of them together is you're reviling God when you curse and dishonor your, your ruler, who God put in place. So so it could be the pastor or the police officer or the premier or the prime minister. God has put them in place to curse them and pray for their absolute destruction or to to speak publicly in ill ways of them or to have ill intent towards them. God commands against that because that is, in fact, a reviling of His sovereign will who put them in place. Or we see in verse 29 uh, to 30, "...you shall not delay your offering from the fullness of your harvest." The firstborns of your sons you shall give me. You shall do the same with your oxen, with your sheep. Seven days it can be with its mother. On the eighth you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Here's what God's saying. That we recall, if you were here, we recall that earlier God declared himself to Israel, I own all life, human and animal. It's all mine. If you have it, you have it as a gift from me on loan. And here's a way you can remember that. Every time a, 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 a son is born from an animal, human or beast, you have to sacrifice it in blood to the Lord. But because I despise human sacrifice and love human life, you substitute, or the word is redeem. You redeem your son from death by killing an animal in its place. How's that? And, and by doing so, the Israelites were reminded, every birth, every harvest, every new mother, you would be reminded, God owns All of this, he apportions to me only a slice. Which means that if they were stingy, or if they were cheap, or if they were delayed in bringing their sacrifices as they were supposed to do, it showed an underlying thought pattern that really, God wanted my stuff. I own it. He wants a piece of it. I'm delaying it because it's ultimately mine. God wanted them reminded in their hasty, timely, on-time sacrifices, we don't own it, he does. He lets us keep the rest and demands only a portion, but he is the ultimate owner. So in the, in the politics, in our budgeting, in agriculture, finances, God was commanding that the Israelites love the Lord their God with all of their heart. Oh, We see in verse 31 a command against barbecuing roadkill. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Now, you might think, who in the world would do that? You probably just haven't traveled enough west to know that people do this. Or south. Everyone south does this as well. Queensland is only pure. The southeast Queensland specifically. But, but the, the further west you go, the more often you'll see someone just sort of pulling over in their pajero to sort of check on the, the flaming, about to burst kangaroo to just... Test its uh, tenderness and whether it'll go all right on a barbecue. Right? People do this. Uh, they'll find a dead animal. and, and I mean, it's, free, it's a free lunch. There's apparently no such thing as a free lunch. But here it is when, when some bull or some snake or some lightning rod or some land cruiser has killed an animal in the wilderness. It's free food for you. Now, here's where it comes into God's people. On one hand, we could say, well, isn't this wise health codes long before it's time? Well, yeah, Probably. But that's not the express reason God gives. The reason God gives is because in their system, there was clean animals and unclean animals. And and even the clean animals had to be killed certain ways to be able to be offered to God. Here's what God's saying. I'm consecrated. I don't accept just anything. But you're my people... And though you're not as consecrated as me, you are supposed to be consecrated to me. So if there's dead animals out there, health-wise it may be a wise decision, but the real reason I want you to not just pick it up and eat it is because you need to be reminded, even in your dietary requirements, I am the Lord your God and you belong ultimately to me. Provisions will be made by me because you belong to me. Some things are unclean for me, they're unclean for you. You don't know how it died, what unclean animal has eaten in it, what's been growing in it, you don't know. So rather, trust the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God, even in your hunting and your diet. We see in 23 verse 19, go to the end of the chapter. uh, Sorry, halfway through the end of the chapter, the end of our text today. Verse 19 of chapter 23, the end of verse 19 says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I haven't even tried that. Actually, it sounds kind of good. Here's what the rule is not. The rule is not no boiling lamb in milk. The command is do not boil the goat in its own mother's milk. So again, we come back to this. There's got to be a principle here because that's real strange. Now, on one hand, this is fitting to go into the section of loving God because that is literally what the Canaanites would do to try and boost the harvest and the, and, and the, and the babies of their, agric- of their beasts that year is, is mix a baby in the milk, boil it till it's dead, and then eat of its flesh. Now, now one thing that God's saying is don't do the weird stuff that the Canaanites do. But obviously the second part is, is definitely that he's saying, don't take that which I've designed for life, the milk from a mother for its child, and turn it into a source and a method of death. Uh, many common uh, uh, modern commentators take this application and, and speak to, to the way that we as mankind naturally and quickly twist nature, not just God's law, but just God's design. We're twisting of it so that we do disgusting things and a modern application might be like abortion. Don't think it's so convenient that you can kill a child massacre a child, cut up a child, poison a child, you don't even have to see it, you don't even have to handle it, you don't even have to do any hands-on manner with it, because it's hidden in this perfect little kill box called the mother's life-giving womb. And so this theme is coming through Canaanite religion, modern man's uh, health system, and the Israelites are being commanded about it. Think about how God has created the world, and Work with the grain, that that which gives life should give life. That which brings death by God ought to be done carefully. But do not, even in your hunting, your diet, love the Lord your God. One of the things that should be coming through the Israelites' mind as they're listening to all these laws is, there is just no arena of life where I can do anything I want, is there? I mean, being an Israelite really is a a totalizing worldview. This whole honor God and love God with all your heart. I mean, it touches everything. I can't even pick up a a quail that I just saw fall from the sky to the ground. I can't even pick that up and have a barbecue because God. It was a totalizing worldview that God demanded consecration in every area. In the Christian uh, mindset, in the new covenant, we, we call this that the Christian worldview is a totalizing worldview. There's nothing that the authority of Christ does not touch in all of the world. And therefore, as Christians, there is no area of our life that Jesus does not transform how we partake in it. Uh, This has been called sometimes all of Christ for all of life. Everything you do will be affected by your submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. God was saying to his people, I want love for me and my glory to define everything about you. Yes, how you eat. Yes, how and when you bring sacrifices. How you manage finances and agricultural resources as a family. Everything is to be done to the glory of God. Paul picks us up in 1 Corinthians 10. Kind of ironically, within a discussion about idolatry, pagan feasts and sexual immorality. And he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. As converted Gentiles, not Israelites, but as converted Christians, we have this shocking realization as we read the New Testament. Is there nothing I can do without reference to Jesus? And the answer is absolutely not. There's nothing that he did without reference to his people. Every second of... Every day what he ate, what he thought, what he did was always in mind. How can I love my God in such a way as to remain perfect and clean to redeem my people? It is fitting that we ask the same thing. Everything, what we eat, how we plan our money around. How can I be glorifying God, the Lord who gave himself for me in my everything? There's a command for the Christian to love God With all of our heart, soul, and strength. We move to the second understanding. Not only were the Israelites commanded, like we are, to love God with their everything, but then they were also commanded to love neighbor. Now, 1 John, uh, the book of James, the teaching of Jesus teaches us that there can be no genuine love of God without an overwhelming transformation and an overflow of love for neighbor. They will always go together. All true religion will have both. As we... Here's what I mean by loving our neighbor. I don't mean do whatever you're told by your boss or government or, or the next uh, uh, agenda that love your neighbor means. Loving your neighbor means you don't let them define what loving your neighbor means. That, that's rule one. They don't get to tell you what loving them looks like, right? In our world of, of hyper-empathy and just, just love people however they want to be loved, that's not loving. By loving your neighbor, the Bible means seeking their genuine Temporal and eternal good. They might not like it. right? You can love people and walk away from them and then be really angry at you. Because they're not geared or in sync with God's definition of love. Sometimes we'll stuff it up, I know. We'll be sinful as well. But loving them means seeking their genuine, eternal and temporal good. And one of the themes that we see come through here in God's design for his society... The way that loving neighbor had to start was with male responsibility. Like biological male, being that thing is a, is a set thing, can't change. Just a mind blow reminder for us today. And it comes with unchosen responsibilities from God. You didn't put your hand up for it. You didn't sign something and say, I would like to live under male responsibility. No, you were born that way by God's divine sovereignty. And being that, you are called to fulfill certain responsibilities that yes, other gender, singular, does not have to do to the same degree. Here's here's what I mean. Go to verse 16 of chapter 22. Now I know that as I read it, the first thoughts through our head will likely be how antiquated this sounds and how old fashioned these ideas are. If a man seduces a virgin, that is a, a young girl, who is not betrothed, that is, she's not already engaged to a man, for which the punishment would be death. But if he seduces a virgin who's not betrothed, right, young man, young woman, have sex. He shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife, if her father utterly refuses though to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now we start hearing those, that language and we go, oh, of course, in the in the list of ownership and resources that men own is listed their young daughters that they can buy and sell at prices and it's just not at all how it was. Meant or how it comes across, if with an honest reading, but not a, not at all the practice. The the bride price is not a, a price tag that young women had floating around behind them They're in the marketplace that you could go up to the windows and ch- and, and how much for the blonde one, sir? Okay, oh, yeah, I see. Can I have that in a five foot four model? Is that all right? Oh, that's good. Yeah, cha ching, cha ching, and there you go. Yes, yeah, you have a bride. Not the practice. The bride price was a, was 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 an agreed upon negotiated between. Future father-in-law and future son-in-law. It was a negotiated worth or value that that father and the future husband both agreed that this young lady was worth to a household. All right? She doesn't know how to do any dishes. That value's starting to drop. She doesn't want to or value children whatsoever. Okay, that's not a very particularly... As as somebody building a household as God has commanded, that's going to be problematic. Uh, She doesn't believe in in, in orderly household. That price is, is really starting to plummet. Now, I'm making jokes because it wasn't a price. But the father and the husband would agree, if you as a father lost this adult contributing member in your family you would, in a normal year or over a period of time, you would lose X amount of value as an income and productivity as a family. I, as a future husband, I want that resourcefulness. I, I want this wonderful lady I'm in love with. I, I want her to become a part of my household. Here's how I can offset your loss with my, my bride price. Sometimes, though, it wasn't actually paid to the family. It was given to the family but owned by the wife in insurance in case the husband died, that she would not be able to go and farm and earn a living while she had children, so she would be able to fall back on the the ancient version of life insurance. So sometimes she owned it, sometimes it went to the family, it was all a part of the negotiations. Also, the other part that we see in here that usually piques our interest is that we think this law commands girls who are raped to marry their rapist. Look at what it says. If, if a man comes and has sex with a, with a young woman, she has to marry him. Not the rule. There's a whole other law in the Old Testament for rapists, and that's called the death penalty. Rightfully so. Their heads are removed from their bodies, or every bone in their body is shattered as they are stoned. Tremendous law. Amen? Yeah, tremendous law. This law is about when two consenting adults uh, go and and, and, uh, uh, lie with one another romantically. Now, at this point, we go, well, if that's the case, why is he the one getting punished? You go, well, hang on, he's not getting punished. He's just been told he needs to get married. Careful about how you talk about marriage. It's not a sentence. (laughs) But why is he, we might why is he the one being, if he goes and seduces her? Because this is how God designed, not just Israel, but the world. God holds men primarily responsible, especially in matters of sexual immorality. It's not to say that the Bible has nothing to say about the the adulterous, temptuous, fornicating woman. Of course. But here God is saying, here's a paradigm to think through. When two young people go and fornicate, grab him by the scruff of the neck, and walk him to the judge's office and decide what's happening next with his potential future father-in-law. Don't do the same with her. Will there be responsibilities and consequences? Absolutely. But the men is to be, are to be held primarily responsible and treated as so. So she's not being forced to marry an abuser, but it does severely limit your future. You get caught in fornication, severely limits your future, and your decisions are now narrowed. Because here's, here's the matter. Here's the other thing it's not saying. If you're caught in fornication, the father forces you to marry her. No, actually, the father, it says here in the next verse, actually co- continues on with his fatherly wisdom, discretion, and authority and gets to decide whether or not this seducing fornicator is actually a fitting future husband for his daughter. So, so, so in some cases, it, it will be wise that instead of being put to death, They are taken, they walked through the implications and the consequences of their behavior. That the son has to now pay the price that he has just uh, uh, weaseled out of the the family. That he has just devalued the bride too. He has to pay that price and stand up, take his responsibility, square on his shoulders and marry her. But if the father is assessing this boy, this relationship, this future marriage and says, this is going to be bad for my daughter, he may utterly refuse such a union. And in that case, he, the boy is still responsible to pay as if he was gonna marry the daughter. Right. Average wedding cost in Australia, 36 grand. Average, not, not a command, this is just stats. Average engagement ring, $6,000 in Australia. So, so let's say 40 grand. The, the boy uh, has slept with and, and is being refused marriage to this young girl. He still has to go and pay for wedding ring and, uh, and other costs. He still has to do that. Why? Because in their society, of course, in, in a good way, one who is, uh, has, has devalued her, her own self and has sinned against God in fornication is genuinely less, uh, less attractive to a future suitor. So, so what she's done by being seduced by this man is set herself up for a much more difficult engagement and marriage in the future. She has lost value in men's eyes who value a faithful, godly, virgin woman. Not only that, but she has also cheapened her father out of ever getting that bride price if that's the way it was going to work. Or if somebody does come along, here's where the bride price comes in. The fornicator paid the money but didn't get to marry her. Now if she never gets married, the family is still secure. She still has something to live on into her old age. Or if somebody did come along to marry her and found out she's actually not a virgin, and he said, "Well, that's that that's that that is a problem for me, but but not a deal breaker." And the father said, "And her bride price has already been paid; we can waive that." He would say, I, "Okay, this becomes more worth it to me." So, in in the wisdom of the day, the men required responsibility. Here's what it did: it avoided free sex. This bride price, male responsibility, it avoided free sex. There's no such thing. If you got caught, you're either being put to death if she's married, you're being required to pay and marry her, or you're being required to pay the bride price and, uh, and, and remain single. It also made marriage a financial commitment. A bride price meant that you couldn't just pop the, 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 the question to a girl on a romantic date up in the mountains and then run away. You had to be able to be an eligible young man who could sit down with her father-in-law. That's mind-blowing today, isn't it? Talk to her father in a conversation. How's that? If he's around, even more mind-blowing, sit down with him and say, here's my financial statements. Here's how much I make a year before tax. Here's my investments. Here's how I can look after your daughter. Can you imagine that conversation happening today as it probably should? (coughs) It made marriage harder to come by, thereby making it more valuable. It called men to strive for worthiness and respectability in other men's eyes. It demanded, here's another one, it demanded father's involvement. There's no room here for negligent fathers who didn't care who their girls were hanging around or dating or spending time with or sleeping with. He was required by God's law to be upfront. front, arm around his daughter. Here's her value to me. Here's what I require of you. Here's how I can help set her up for a beautiful, biblical, godly marriage into the future. Men were commanded by God's law. Now, Back then, as much as today, human nature has not changed. They are just as lazy, just as avoiding responsibility, just as abdicating of authority, just as afraid of emotional women as any men in any other age. But God commanded, men of Israel, stand up, take responsibility, look after the daughters, the sisters, and the women. Men, gladly take responsibility as one of the chief ways that you can love your neighbor as yourself. And then we see a bunch of laws about the underprivileged. So look at chapter 22, verse 21. And then also look at verse 9 of chapter 23. So in chapter 22, verse 21, and chapter 23, verse 9. If you've got a Bible, they'll be on opposite sides of the page probably. And they are, they're kind of, in the Hebrew, this is like a sandwich section. It says one thing, lists a bunch of commands, and then says the same thing again to sort of tell you this is, this is a section, this is a paragraph. And what we have in in these verses is you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. And in verse 9 of the next chapter, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then in between, we have a whole bunch of thematic laws about that point, about how the Israelites were commanded. Now, the sojourner had less rights. Less family, less support, probably spoke the language less, didn't have as many uh, uh, options financially or as much capital. There was somebody passing through Israel or living there for a number of years. And God's command was, do not take advantage of the least blessed. I'm not going to say underprivileged. Or less privileged, because in our Marxist sort of day, it's like if you've got more blessings, you're privileged, and, and woe is you. You're more guilty, and white guilt, etc., and rich guilt, and all of that nonsense. I'm going to say less blessed, because what some men have and what other men have is always a matter of God's own sovereign blessing. Hard work, responsibility, sure, but always ultimately God's blessing. And some people, God has chosen to bless less. And he says, don't pick on them. Don't make money off of them in their hardship. Don't mistreat them or oppress them. That is not what God's people should be doing. He, he says that of the sojourner. Then he goes on to also speak in these verses, which we read earlier, about the widow who had no income and relied entirely on family to look after her. It speaks also of the orphans who would sometimes be stolen and sold or would be required to work from young ages to keep a living or the poor, those who simply couldn't afford investments and other capital, and for whom survival was a struggle. He says to capitalize upon them, to mistreat any of these categories, is social bullying. It is wicked. And where you will not come in to, and defend them, God says, I will step in, defend them. I'll make you, your kids an orphan, your wife a widow. I will kill you with the sword, which is Old Testament language for I'll bring in an army to do my justice and kill you. God cared about people abusing the less blessed. So in matters of justice, love your neighbor as yourself. Or oh, we even see this uh, a section in uh, uh, 23, verse 1 to 3. Chapter 23, verse 1 to 3. Do not spread a false report. Don't join hands with a wicked man in malicious intent. And this is language about uh, really applying the, 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 the ninth commandment of do not bear false witness. Don't go into court and just side with the many because you wanted the jury to get out by lunch. Don't come in and side with the rich guy because he slipped you 100 before you went into the juror's box. Don't uh, uh, side with the many because of the social pressure or, or because of the, the, the bullying that they might stand up. The, 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 the godly man, it even says this uh, later, don't, don't mistreat the, the, the poor And don't side with the poor. How's that? He's against Marxism and all sorts of other manipulation or hyper-capitalism. You don't side with the poor. You don't side with the rich. You don't side with the man or the female, the white or the black or anybody else. You don't side with anything. You side with the truth and what is right and what is godly. That's what the Christian should do. In the workplace, as, as somebody's being bullied or, or around the executive table, as certain malpractices are being swept under the, the rug, Christians, those who know their God, stand firm on the truth and take right action. In matters of justice, in your agriculture, your budgeting, your farming, your politics, in everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. Also, as we think of loving The less blessed, we also see in verse 11. Look at verse 10 and 11. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. Here's another way God commanded the people of Israel to look after the poor and the less privileged, the less less blessed. He says every seven years you give your fields a Sabbath. You don't till them. And whatever seeds are left in the dirt, just let them grow and the pork can just come through. And it's sort of like the the cheap section of Aldi or or maybe like a a soup kitchen in the the city where where a whole bunch of free items have been donated and stand there and the pork can come through for a tiny donation and receive a whole week's of groceries. That's godly. That's good. And now we might want to come in and say, well, this is agriculturally genius. The nitrogen needs to be given a year to lie fallow to reinfuse the soil. Maybe that was part of God's design. His stated design was the love of neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you were poor, if you were struggling to feed your crying children that weighed a tenth of what they should at their weight, don't you just wish that the rich and affluent on your street would just let you walk through their their garden that they're not going to miss and just let you pick a few free fruits? Don't you wish that? Then do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. O Israel. And even, look at verse 23, verse 4. Chapter 23, verse 4. Even, he says, love your enemy as yourself. In verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, bring it back to him. And we all said, dang it. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, rather right? The legs have fallen in and it can't get up and it becomes a very impossible situation in a horse-drawn or donkey-drawn society. You shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him, all right? This is likely what Jesus had in his mind when he told the story of the Good Samaritan. Because here we're being told how to love neighbor. And in Jesus' day, much the same in our day, the religious type tries to justify themselves, it says in Matthew, and and ask, well, technically, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, here's a story about a Samaritan and a a sworn enemy who finds somebody fallen and goes out of the way to love them as their self. And that's what we should do, that you see your, your sworn enemy who took your promotion and has been slandering your family, you see his Lamborghini stolen, broken into, and parked at the servo, you have to interject. I don't know what wisdom will do right Maybe you call the police. You have to do what you can, when you can, even for your enemies. You see him in his souped-up land cruiser who cuts over your grass every morning and rips up all your garden and flips off your kids in the front yard. You see him, tire broken down, kids in the hot sun on the side of the highway. Yes, even then, by God's sovereignty, he brought you across their path, not to mock and laugh, but to be like Jesus and love those who hate you. God commanded, even here in the Old Testament, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The lesson here is that while these laws are all specific to Israel as a nation in the land of Canaan up until Jesus came, Jesus coming was not to say now everyone's Israel and universalize and eternalize all of Moses' law, was it? He didn't do that. He didn't say that was his purpose at all. And yet, the coming of Jesus was not to come and say All of these laws are useless old-fashioned for the Jews and we can learn nothing from them, was it? In the coming of Jesus, he affirmed by his teaching and his actual living under them the goodness and the wisdom of these laws. And then by his blood, he created a people who would have the spirit of the old covenant law written on our hearts. That is, not the letter of the old law in all of its specificity. Hardly any of us are using donkeys to get our gear around anyway. Not the letter of the specific law, but the spirit of the law. The way in which it reflects the moral law of loving God and loving neighbor. These things, as we read them, I know, they're for Israelites in an ancient world in another part of the world. And yet we should read them and be able to say, I reflect the very same spirit that I see. Christians, we should reflect the law of God in our heart, desires, actions, and social responsibility. I'm going to say some things that sound ridiculous, but apply. Does the state of your garden and your yard, the visibility and the presentability of your house and your neighborhood reflect that you love your neighbors? Does where you park your car in the street and on whose lawn and how loud you play your music or how late you play your music, does that reflect a love for neighbor? I see you bumping each other. Yeah, yeah. How friendly or neighborly or generous to people on your street you are, does that reflect a Christ-like love for neighbor? Do you extend help to those who are enemies of you? Not to help their sin, but to help the sinner. How you budget. How much margin you leave in your budget not so that you're squeezing every blessing to give you and your family as much as you can but leaving some budget and margin for generosity and helping of others do you look after the widows help the single parents care for the orphans in your extended family first and your church also do your business practices Are they mostly squeeze-downs and leveraging of other people in desperate situations? Or are they in a spirit of generosity and neighborly love? Men, do you voluntarily delight in taking responsibility? Parents, are you training your sons to be self-mastered, self-controlled, responsibility-taking young men, valuing girls and women and God's institution of marriage? God makes us a people who ought to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, we'll we'll skim through the last part of this uh, uh, section, and we're going to come back next week and study in depth the the purpose and the Christocentric uh, uh, sermons that are preached through the festivals of Israel. That's next week, the festivals of Israel and how they point to Jesus. But look at verse 13 of chapter 23. (coughs) This last section from about... Verse 10 to verse 19, is uh, uh, verse 17 particularly, is about the Sabbaths that the nation was supposed to stick to. Now, there was multiple layers of Sabbaths in the Old Covenant. They they had the weekly Sabbath that they would worship on. They had the, the yearly Sabbath, so every, you know, the big three festivals they would go to Jerusalem for or the seven that they would have to do in total. Then there were the the seven yearly Sabbaths that you would have to rest your your land and also let the slaves go free. Then there were the 50 year Sabbaths which was seven sevens of sevens that you would would, uh, uh, allow the financial debts and all of those things, the slaves to all go free and just reset society back to an even playing field. They had many Sabbaths but look at verse 13 this is In the middle, the literary middle of this section, meaning in this Hebrew literature, this is the main point. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. As they did the Sabbath, as they came and did the three big festivals every year to remember salvation remember God's sustenance, and to trust Him for the future provision. As they did all of that, they were supposed to be remembering God is our God above any and without any other God, and we worship Him the way He has commanded us to worship. Here's what a commentator says on this passage. Full biblical worship is always corporate. This is what he's pulling from the fact that God demanded the Israelites to come together to worship him. Full biblical worship is always corporate. Individuals can carry out a form of worship by themselves and use some of the elements of corporate worship at home, but they cannot alone worship in the manner commanded by scripture. From the point of view of a comprehensive theology, this is because all proper worship on earth is proleptic of, and in imitation of, and a preparation for the eventual worship in heaven. Basically, that means this. Our worship here is supposed to look like worship in heaven. And in worship in heaven, what do you see? A bunch of loners doing devotions? Church on the beach while they fish? No. No. A bunch of people together worshiping Jesus. I didn't even need to tell you that, did I? Thus, all the Israelite families were to gather three times a year in a single place and all together participate in the festivals that God had as their primary purpose for worship. The adoration and the praise of God. Now, now do you think, this is why I'm bringing this into the sermon. We need to love God and love neighbor. And do you see that one of the primary ways, the most important discipline you can commit to, to ensuring you have a a heart, a life, a family of loving God and loving neighbor is being at church. Now, I know I might be preaching to the choir. You're here. I know. But will you be here next week? Or is there a game on? Or is the weather too dark? Or is it too bright so fishing's great? Or is it is it, is it another trip? Is it, is it another reason? Is it the sports game for the kids? Is it another party? A, a three-year-old party? I mean, church or three-year-old party? Or will you be here next week? And of course there's exceptions and things come up, but are they genuinely exceptions? A bi-weekly exception is not an exception. It's a discipline. The way we love God and love neighbor... Best in discipline in God's manner is devoting ourselves to corporately coming together and adoring and loving our God. And corporately coming together, knowing one another's needs, helping each other with what we have and being there spiritually seeking one another's good. Love for God and love for neighbor. In the law was how God wanted Israel to be marked. What is the primary way that God wants the church to be marked? I wonder how often you think of this. What's the most important thing about a church? What is the There's lots of important things. What is the most important thing about a church? I'll tell you, it's this. That the gospel of the Lord and Savior, dead and resurrected Jesus Christ, is constantly on our lips and exploding through our communities. That is the most important mark of any true local church. Jesus is worshipped and then we go out and we speak his name. We invite people to church. We talk about the gospel to others. We preach on the streets. We hand out the tracts unto the salvation of souls being brought into the church in salvation. The most important marker of a church is our preaching of the gospel. It's the most important way that as a gathering church we can love God and love people is bring Jesus to him, uh, to them, and bring them to Jesus. But there's no point, as we close now, final point, there is no point listening to anything that has been said about obeying the law, loving people, or preaching the gospel, if you right now are still separate from Jesus, unredeemed from salvation, still In your sin and still going to hell. Speaking the gospel, fulfilling the law, doing lots of good neighborly things will do you no good. Your most pressing need above everything else is have you in your heart of hearts trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ despite all of your sin and even regardless of all of your good religion. Stuff it all. Have you had your heart broken open and as you look to God without any mitigation... Asked him, God, forgive my sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept me because of him, not because I'm any good. Make me a new person by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That and that alone brings life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your foreshadowing and your wonderful promises given and fulfilled all throughout the history of Israel. We thank you that though not binding on us in the same manner, it is still a blessing to study and find your law, even application into our life. But we pray, Lord God, this, that just as you, you had such a purpose for the Israelite nation, you had so much glorious blessings to give them, I pray that we would remember our far more superior blessings, free forgiveness, being cleansed from our sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. And would you, Lord God, please bless us by adding to our number new souls today. Would you welcome home lost children? Would you, would you bring to your, to your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, more people who are still in their sin? Let them repent and give them faith to trust in him and be saved. We pray this, Lord God, in our great Lord and Saviour's name, Jesus Christ. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.